This morning, we're continuing our lyric series, Talking Through Psalms, and I'm excited to share with you out of Psalm 51, and that's really where we'll be this morning. Uh, as I was preparing for this message, I thought about uh, this term. I don't know if you guys have heard of this term, but the mercy rule. The title of the sermon is The Mercy Rule. Does anyone, when you were a kid, have you guys ever experienced the mercy rule? Some call it the slaughter rule, right? Uh, the skunk rule, whatever it is. In sports, there's this rule that uh, for, for kids, or at least it was when I was younger, that if a team is losing by so much that the game is just over, like you're performing so badly that everyone goes, you don't physically have what it takes to overcome the deficit that you had in your life, right? And so they call it the mercy rule. As kids, you call it the slaughter rule because it's meaner. And uh, that's how kids work. And, you know, I know apparently they don't keep score anymore, but kids keep score. And they keep track of who's winning and who's not winning. So there was this term. And basically, I remember in the mercy rule, it's just kind of this idea that one team... This is kind of this definition. One team has such an insurmountable deficit that no amount of their physical effort will ever be enough to overcome it. And I, I remember being younger, and in the offseason, we would play indoor uh, soccer because you're just tired sometimes of always getting rained on. So you'd go inside and play. And at one point, I remember playing this game and winning and they shut the scoreboard off. There was a basketball kind of hockey-esque scoreboard. And they just, they didn't end the game. They just shut the scoreboard off, which isn't mercy. It's just kind of like you, you're telling the team you're doing so bad that we're not even going to keep track, but you still have to play, <laughs> which is not merciful at all. But uh, in baseball, they have a rule that if one team is winning by 10 runs uh, by the fifth inning that they just call it. Last night, I went to the Diamondbacks game. And they won 20 to 5. 20. I feel like at some point the mercy rule should have kicked in. I mean, I, I enjoyed it, like rooting for the Diamondbacks, because I went to the July 4th game and it was not good. Uh, but tw 20, I think if you get to 15, you should just call it. Like San Diego should have just said, we've obviously not shown up. What does it matter if we just leave anyways? So there's this idea, I feel like, in the mercy rule that, that was kind of meant to spare kids shame and further humiliation. But really, uh, it's, it's meant to spare the parents, which is like, I don't want to watch my kid just get destroyed any longer. Please let me go home and do what I want to do. And so it was kind of this, like, sparing rule because really it doesn't spare the kids. Like, if, if you're playing a game, and, and I remember being a kid, like, if you're playing a game and you're losing so bad that they're like, yeah, just stop. That doesn't make you feel better. Like, oh, thank goodness <laughs> they stopped us. So there's this idea, I feel like, that's kind of a twist on, on the mercy rule. Cause, but I think some of us have felt this way in life at some point in needing the mercy rule. And that at some point in our life, we have felt that we are, when it comes to sin and comes to the choices and it comes to failure, when it comes to things in our life, we have such an insurmountable deficit that no amount of physical effort could make up for it. Is everyone with me this morning? No amount of what we could do that, that I've, I, I, in my life, I'm kind of such a screw up and it's probably just me. I know you guys are all you know, locked in, but I personally am such a screw-up that in my life, there's no way that a physical effort could, could overcome the amount that I am in deficit. 
And so sometimes in my life in the past, I felt like maybe someone could just like shut off the scoreboard. <laughs> maybe someone could just shut it off. I won't have to deal with it, invoke the mercy rule. But I think what we need in our life isn't the mercy rule like we have in baseball or soccer. Or I don't I think they have one in football. Like we don't need that that just stops it because no one can stand to look at it anymore. We need a different mercy rule. And I, I believe that we need God's mercy rule. And, and I think what we read about when in the life of David is God's mercy rule because God's mercy rule is supernatural. See, the natural world, the world, the world that we live in, right, nature, it can only revise, it can't restore. So uh, think about, I guess, like a team losing badly. A team losing badly still loses. The kids still go home bummed. They're not victorious. They just didn't have to lose for 20 minutes longer or whatever it might have been. It's not that. Picture like the biggest, greatest redwood tree you could possibly imagine. In nature, if that tree falls, there's nothing in nature that can restore it back to standing, back to being upright, back to being rooted, back to being, now it can revise it, it can grow other trees out of it, right, and nurse trees and grow other things and nurture the soil and all these things, and, and we can find things, but there's nothing in nature that can restore it back to the way that it was, to take something that's fallen and restore it back to being standing. But the supernatural mercy rule, the supernatural can restore. And it's in the nature of God to restore those that have fallen back to the place that they were, back to the calling that they have on their life. That God is not trying to improvise and make revisions because of your mistakes, but that God is all powerful. And no matter how fallen or no matter how broken we feel or no matter how we've messed up, the God's mercy rule says, hey, I'm going to restore you to the purpose that I've called you. So nature can't, can't lift it up. Nature can't do that. Nature can't. The natural world cannot, but the supernatural, the power of God can restore what has fallen. Are you with me this morning? I think David is one of the greatest examples of this. Because David is listed as a man after God's own heart. And, and David, in our last thing, he looked so poetic and so kingly and just so like, he was like kind of earthy and he was kind of cool. And, you know, all the gals, you know, were super into him because he, he was, you know, a conservationist and he was good looking, but he also had money. You know, all, all of these things. This is modern hipster. You guys laugh at money, but you know that's, you know people are into that. Uh, so in this psalm series, we've looked at David because we've seen him as kind of this, the Lord is my shepherd character. But I think what we see in Psalm 51 is, is a shift because that's a major moment in, of his life. And what we see in Psalm 51 is an example of how we bring our failure, how we bring our mistakes, how we bring our fallen moments before God, and he exchanges them for mercy. And they, when we invoke God's mercy rule in our life, when we, when we come before the mercy of God, that things change, that things shift. And so this morning... I really believe as we read Psalm 51 and my prayer this morning is that God would not only encourage you, but that he would restore you. That some of us were living trying to hope that God revises his plan in our life because of our mistakes. But God this morning wants to say to you, no, I want to restore to your purpose, to your identity. I want to give restoration to your life, to your meaning, to your call. Not just revise it because you think you've made a mistake. And I think David 
illustrates that. Can we pray together this morning? God, we thank you that we can gather together and read your word. And this morning I pray that there would be restoration by the power of your Holy Spirit. God, that no matter how some of us might feel distant from you, that God, you are always drawing near to us. And your scripture says that those who draw near, that you will draw near to them. And so God, be here with us. We thank you that you're already opening our hearts. God, we thank you that you're already changing lives here this morning, that your spirit is already with us, that we don't even need to wait, that you're already moving. So just open our hearts to what you're doing in your name. Amen. So we're going to be in Psalm 51, but I'm going to kind of give a little behind the music this morning. Are we good with that? A little behind the music. I I think that this is important. I, I liked VH1's behind the music. I thought it was good. Yes, thank you. Yeah, no, it's cool. All of us in this church, all 10 of us between this weird age of not being in our 20s, but still like knowing that, and it's a unique show, right? It's how do you give that context of why a song is important? What's the background? What was this band doing? And you're like, why is this song so weird? It's like, oh, because this is the things they were doing in hotel rooms. So that makes sense. Or why is it so powerful? It's like, oh, because this is, you know, a death or a tragedy that occurred. So there's a little behind the music here that's going to give us some context. So for us, we're going to be in 2 Samuel 11. If you brought your Bibles, you can open them there. If not, the words will be on the screen. We're going to be in 2 Samuel for just a little bit, and then we'll jump. But 2 Samuel 11, 1 through 5 says this. In the spring of the year, the time when the kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. So right here, David, this is the time when the kings are supposed to go to war. But David decides to stay back and to stay comfortable and stay idle. And it kind of right in place into that like old school phrase, like idle hands of the devil's workshop, right? It's this idea that David was stepping kind of outside of what he was called and what he was supposed to do in his position because he wanted to be comfortable. And what happens when he became comfortable is he became complacent. And then all of a sudden he began to drift away from the Lord and do things he wasn't supposed to do. So it says in 11.3 or 11.2, it happened. So what had happened was one late afternoon... When David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house, that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanliness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. And now David's kind of got a problem. Not, not that a kid is a problem. A kid is always a blessing. We always rejoice in that. But David has something interesting here because if David was a regular king at that time, he would not have cared about this news basically whatsoever. He would have done a couple things. He would have killed everyone. He would have ignored everyone or, I don't know, kind of grab bag when it came to kings in the ancient Near East. Uh, what we would consider basic human rights uh, was different then than it is now. But David was a good king, and Israel was, was governed by the Lord. And so David had an issue because he had a moral code. He had a moral understanding. And so David has now slept with someone who was someone else's wife and gotten her pregnant. And 
David has an issue here. And so what does David do? Does he repent? Does he come before the Lord? Does he make things right? No. David <laughs> invites her husband back from war and says, hey, you're doing such a good job. I'm going to let you go home and be with your wife in the hopes that they would sleep together and that, you know, they're working on this timeline. He's got to fit things in between to convince him that this is actually his kid and not someone else's kid. And so he's on this timeline. Mind you, this whole time, this poor woman is the victim of this whole process, that she has been taken by the king and abused by his power, and now he invites her husband home, but her husband doesn't go home because he's a good soldier. Her husband lays and, and sleeps at the uh, front gate with all the soldiers because he says, my soldiers are still at war. So he's a good man. He's a valiant man. And so what does David do? Does he say, man, this is a good man. I'm going to make it right before the Lord. No, he just doubles down on his sin. Sin unconfessed is compounded all the time. And that's the human nature is that when we, I, and maybe I'm the only one, I will self-confess. When I sin, I often, when I should, say, oh, my gosh, Lord, forgive me right off the bat. I kind of just double down on it, like just get deeper into it. And then I'm like, I just feel so judged by everyone. I don't know why I'm feeling this way. It's like because your inside is screaming at you. Why do you keep doing these stupid things that you're doing? And so David is on this path. And so David sends him back to the battle, sends Uriah back out, and what he does is he tells his commander, okay, put Uriah in the front, and then everyone Braveheart style charge out, but then just JK, pull back and let him die. And that's the plan. And so he does, and Uriah dies. And so David takes, uh, he takes Bathsheba as his wife, and she bears him a child, and they're, they're married, and she's grieving, and he's an idiot, and they're just in this process. And so this is the man after God's own heart. But it's a far cry. It's a far cry from the man after God's own heart, from the man who wrote, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, but I'll apparently want a naked girl on a roof. It's a jump. And so what happens then in 2 Samuel 12 is that David is confronted by a prophet. And I'm just going to read this whole chunk here, 12, 1 through 14. It says, And the Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him and said to him, and he tells him this story, here it is. There were two men in a certain city, one rich, the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little um, ewe, ewe, lamb, which he had brought. I never know how to say that word. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guests who had come, but he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And Nathan, knowing that he's got him, says to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives and your arms, and gave you the house of Israel and Judah, and if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. 
Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor and he, will sh he shall lie with your wives on the side of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin and you shall not die. Nevertheless, because of this deed, you have utterly scorned the Lord. The child who is born to you shall die. And then Nathan went to his home. So David is confronted here for what he's done. David the psalmist, David the king, David who we talked about before, he was so poetic and great. He's confronted in this moment with consequences. And you can choose your choice, but you can't choose your consequence. That is an unfortunate reality that many of us have to, or have to realize. You can't choose your consequences. And so David is faced with this. And, and I think it's interesting that David confesses his sin because in our context, we're like, yeah, of course he would, he would say this. Like, we're, we're part of that culture that can kind of call things out and, and call them as we see them. But in this culture, it would have been really unusual for a ruler or king to admit error when they had the power or the authority to pretend like they didn't make a mistake. Because he could have just been like, yeah, there's, there's no problem here, no issue. But he admits that he's an error. And I, and I think not only does he admit that it's an error, but he, he puts it in, right? That David, this part is in Samuel. Obviously, David's not writing this, but this part is in the word. This part is in Psalms. He writes a song about it, that it becomes part of canon, that it becomes all of these things. So David doesn't shy away from the reality of what he's facing in this moment. And, and I think what's important, even though like David, you'd say like, David, why would you write about this? Why would you write about this horrid affair and murder? If you were writing your memoir, you would probably avoid this part, kind of skip over it. But why, why, does, why does David write a psalm about this? Why does he write into it? Because David didn't hold anything back from God. David didn't dress anything up for God. David didn't pretend like what was going on in his life was separate from the Lord, that it was compartmentalized, that it was separated out. David, whether he was victorious or grieving, brought it before the Lord. And he says, look, I've messed up more than most people have in, in their life, that I've literally had someone killed and adultery and all these things. But, but I know that God is great and good, and so I bring it before him even though I've done these things. And he brings it in his messiest form. Psalm 51, a lot of psalms are composed in this very like through composed beautiful way. Psalm 51, he's kind of jumping around. Because when he writes this psalm, and, and get this picture, it says, his child dies. So he has now committed adultery, murder, and he's facing the death of his child. And so when we read Psalm 51, this is the backstory. This is the context. This is what's happening is that David isn't just writing that, that God forgives out of like, ah, you know, I got a little upset at my kids. He's writing from the deepest, darkest place of depression and grief. And out of that place comes the rawness, comes the authenticity, comes the connection through the psalm. And there's three things that we read. I just want to read Psalm 51, and there's three things that we see that I believe 
should release and encourage and restore us this morning. Psalm 51, it says this. This is his prayer. Remember, he goes into his room and he's crying out to God. And he's broken in his heart. And he says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth and the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. It says, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. It says, then I will teach your transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from the blood guiltness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in a sacrifice or I will give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. And he says, do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then uh, will you delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. The bulls will be offered on your altar. To me, I think Psalms 51 is the best, one of the best examples of how to exchange brokenness, hurt, shame, sin, failure for mercy. And we need balance. Again, this is important. And I, and I always want to teach balance in the things that we do. Is that balance is important that we, we don't dwell uh, so long in our sin that we forget the victory of Jesus. But that we don't cheapen mercy to just to get out of hell free card. Right? That balance is so key that, that we dwell both in, in the weight of our sin but the victory of Christ. That we're not constantly bogged down, but we also understand with sober judgment the, the weight of those things. Is everyone with me this morning? And I think David does a good job in the balance. So there's three things this morning I, I want to look at, three points. The very first thing is own your confession. Confession, I feel like it's a really classic, classic term. But it's important because confession is an admittance uh, of wrong. Right? When, when, you, when you write a confession... If you did something and the cops brought you in, you write a confession and sign it. It's, it's admitting and saying, yes, I, I, I did this. And so when David is confronted in 2 Samuel, he doesn't make any excuses. He didn't say like, well, did you, she was naked on the roof in pure eyesight. What, do you think she couldn't see? He doesn't make any excuses. He doesn't try to cast blame on the victim. He doesn't try to put it off to society or, or you know, ah, oh, well, I'm a king and kings will be kings. And, you know, he, he doesn't try to push it off. He owns it and says, Lord, I, I have sinned. And the first step really to this restoration is owning our confession. 
Psalm 51 in uh, verse 3, he says, for I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. See, God already knows our sin and our transgression, but what he wants to see is that will we own it, will we understand how important it is to confess, to repent, to lay it down. And the encouraging part is the moment he confesses his sins, now there's still consequences for the things he's done. Things happen. You do things, things happen as a response, right? We're all, we're all with that. There's still consequences. But what happens is immediately in 2 Samuel, it says, Nathan says, the Lord has taken away your sin. You're not going to die. And here's why confession is so crucial, right? Because we are created to live a full life with Jesus Christ. That the enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But Christ came that we might have life and have it to the fullest, right? That we're called to have a full life and yet sin has separated us from that fullness. Our choices separate us from the Lord. And that God sent his son Jesus to die for us. So good news this morning, you already have victory. Your deficit is already paid. The deficit that we could never work out, that mercy rule already happened. That beautiful exchange already occurred. It's already paid for. The deficit is already done. The victory is won. But the trick that the enemy uses is to use your shame to keep you from the victory. Because when we speak out loud the things we've been doing or feeling or thinking, oftentimes we feel shame. Because to confess something means to bring it into the open. means to bring it into the light. But the enemy uses shame as a tool to convince us to leave it in the darkness. But what happens in the darkness, when you have a wound, when you have, when you have a wound in, on your soul as it begins to fester, and all of a sudden things begin to form around it and, and the grime and the pus and the junk begins to form around this wound because it just sat in the dark, damp, wetness, grossness of shame. And it can't be healed, it can't be released, it can't be, can't be cleansed, it can't be, can't be pulled out because we're afraid of shame. And all of a sudden all these things in our lives begin to grow in, begin to fester, bitterness and resentment and all these things. And God's saying, listen, bring it into the light and, and I want to bring light to it. And yeah, that, that might sting, that might be a little embarrassing, but I want to bring that out into the light so that you can be healed of it. Confession is the first step to healing our soul. And when we own our confession, when we really own that, when we say, God, I, this is really where I am. I'm coming just as I am. I'm not trying to dress it up. I'm not trying to make it worse or better. I'm just bringing it as it is. When we own that, we open the door. We begin that restoration that God wants to give. We destroy the lies of the enemy when we're honest. It's easy for the enemy to lie to you, but if everybody knows what's going on in your life, if you've confessed, if you've given it to the Lord, if you're walking this journey, if you don't live in the shadows, then you're not worried about anyone pointing a light to on you. Does that make sense? The second thing that we see in Scripture is that surrender our hearts to be made new. So we own our confession. We say, God, I, I, I've fallen short in these ways. And he says, your sin's forgiven. And the second thing is that then we surrender our hearts to be made new. We say, God, would you make my heart new? See, when we confess our sin and humble ourselves, we're allowed to be transformed. See, David doesn't just repent of his sin and, and say, like, well, I'm a mess and, and I have all these things going. But, you know, at least God forgave me. 
He sought transformation. You know, we had this kind of cultural thing. It's not as cultural now, but kind of like, only God can judge me. And we've made this distinction, I think, in our culture. And I talk to people all the time about the difference between being judgmental and having good judgment. Does everyone understand that difference? Being judgmental is, I'm, I think you are less of a person because of the decisions you've made, the life that you live, because you look, act, dress a certain way. I think you're less. That's called being judgmental. Now, what we've allowed that to do is, is that word to begin to steal into the, the idea of having good judgment and sound understanding. To say, there is truth. There is right or wrong. There is good and bad. There are these things intrinsic. There is truth in our culture and our life. And so what happens is when, when we break away from this thing of like, yeah, I'm just, I, I, I'm just messy. And if you don't accept me as messy, then you don't love me. Jesus says, no, 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 listen, I take you as you are, no matter how you come in here, but I want to leave you there. I want to take you to the purpose I built you for. I want to take you to the promise. If you come in uh, addicted, I don't want to leave you addicted. I want to release you into freedom. If you come in trapped, I don't want to leave you in prison. I want to release you into freedom. Whatever that is in your life, you know, I don't know. Whatever that is, God's saying, listen, I, I want you to live in the fullness, and that's a journey. And that's between you and the Lord. That's not my journey. That's your journey. That's your call. But the God's saying, I believe in transformation, a heart made new. What we see in David is after David repents, he doesn't stay there. He desires a new heart. He desires transformation. God wants to make your heart new. Verse 7, it, he uses the word wash. And uh, it's the word uh, used to describe not the washing of a person like taking a bath, but washing of like soiled garments. Meaning what's hanging on him is this feeling of being dirty. And then there's this word hyssop, uh, uh, purge me with hyssop. It was this kind of like bundled herb, and they would use it to uh, for part of the cleansing process of lepers. Does everyone kind of know leprosy? Like we're cultural enough to kind of understand it. Into the sores and all this stuff they would get. And so what David is saying is, God, I feel, I feel like uh, like just disease, like. My sin and my shame is hanging on me like dirty clothes. Everyone ever felt like this? Like my, my sin is just hanging. When people look at me, I feel like that's all they see is just this. It's like hanging on me. And David's saying, God, would you take that away? I don't want to feel like this. I don't want this resting on me. I don't want to walk through life with this. God, would you purify my heart? Would you give me a clean heart? I need God to remove all the shame, all the things that hang on me because I want to walk in freedom. I don't want to walk around stinking of what I could have victory over. I want freedom. And we got to remember, again, David is writing this. Go back to our context. David is writing this right after his child has died. He's done some of the things he's regretted most in his entire life that he warns the most when he's teaching Solomon against. And he's writing this and he's saying, God, you have released me from this sin. You said I, I, I'm forgiven, but I feel this sin. I feel this shame hanging on me. I know you said this, but God, I need you to, clean, to purify my heart. I need to, to feel you make me new. Come into my heart and in every corner, every place, if there's a door, knock it down. If there's a blocked off space, push it over. If there's a dark corner, shine a light. God, my, my whole heart is exposed because I'm tired of living with the stink and the stench of my failure and I want to walk with you. I want to walk in the freedom of you. So God, just take it away. Purify my heart. 
God, I love that you take me as I am. I love that you receive me as, as who I am. But I thank you that you're not comfortable with just leaving me there. That you want to take me to my purpose. Create in me a, a pure heart, God. Psalm 139 says, search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way of everlasting. When we confess our sin and surrender our heart, we know that God will begin to make our heart new, to bring new life. The third thing this morning, man, you can come up, is receive restoration. The reason I say receive is because it's there to be had, but there is choices that have to be made. See, David's prayer, and this is what I think is crazy, is that he would be restored to the joy of salvation. Let me tell you from personal experience, when you lose a child, praying that God would give you joy is usually the last thing on your mind. Survive the day is usually kind of the jam. And so when David cries out to God and says, God, would, would you restore the joy of my salvation? Again, this is a pattern for our life when we have fallen, when we have fallen short, when we feel at the bottom, when we feel depressed. And I, I've been there, trust me, it is when we're crying out to God, it's that God doesn't want to just revise his plan based on our failure. He wants to restore us to our purpose. And he says, come to me and see that I would not restore you. The supernatural mercy God is mercy of God is the only way that works. Simon Peter is probably one of my favorite character people, not characters, people in the Bible. Probably because he comes off a tad aggressive, and I also come off a tad aggressive. <laughs> and I feel like if there are anyone in this church who could cut an ear off, I might be one of ten. Um, <laughs> I'm just saying, if we went down, maybe Jake, one of us would. <laughs> Uh, I, I like Simon Peter, and I also like about him because I am prone to this, that he was also prone, is to really strong declaration and really bold failure. I, I fail boldly. <laughs> um, and, and I love that about Simon Peter, that, that when Simon failed, when, when he denies Christ and Christ meets with him afterwards and he sits down with him, that he doesn't say, man, you know what, you really messed up. So I guess we're going to have to go, Philip, would you like to be the rock of the church? Great, now Phil, like Judas is out. Um, but he says, Peter, I'm going to restore you. See, nature can't restore. Peter was a mighty oak of righteousness, a planting of the Lord, but he had fallen. And where nature says, you you lie where you die, you know, you're, that's where you are. It, it, he says, I'm going to raise you up. I'm going to lift you back up. And, and what we see is a restoration that God's mercy rule is restorative. He says in Ephesians, but because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace that we have been saved. That's why we can bring all of our sins and failures. See, what's happened in the church, what's happened with us historically is we had these, this kind of confession place you would have to go into to confess, to, get, to go in and someone would hear your confession in, in, in certain, certain cultures. And yet what, what God, 
wants. And what David is showing us is in the moment when we feel like, God, I have failed, I have messed up, you don't got to put on a suit and tie. You don't got to do the right things and say the right things and, and go through a thing and pray through certain beads or things. You just have to say, God, I, I messed up. God, I've failed. God, I, I feel like hanging on me is my sin. Hanging on me is my shame. And when I hear the whisper of the enemy, I, I don't even want to go to like church. I don't want to go to any of this because he's telling me people are going to judge you. People are saying things. And, and so, God, I feel this working in my life, the shame, and I'm just tired of it. I need restoration. I don't need revision. I don't need a plan B. I just need you to restore me. And you know what God says when you say that? He says, amen. Let it be. Let it be so. Because nobody wants you to walk in the purpose you were created for more than Christ Jesus. And nobody wants to steal that purpose from you more than the enemy. And so every moment that you say, God, I'm taking this out of the darkness into the light. And I'm saying, I give it to you. I repent of this in my life. Whatever separated me from you, whatever reoccurring thing keeps coming up, the sin I keep tapping into all the time. I'm tired or I'm exhausted and I go back to this thing, whatever that is. God's saying, you know what? I want to restore you. I want to release you. But can I encourage you, church? If David, in the moment when he had felt that well up in his heart, had come before the Lord and said, God, I repent, tell me that none of this would have happened. No one, people wouldn't have had to suffer like they suffered because he just said, God, I'm not gonna hide. I'm not gonna hide in my shame. I'm gonna say, God, I give it to you. I surrender it to you. And that means wherever you are in your week, wherever you are in your day, if you're at work, someone is it really, uh, and you, and you do something you're not supposed to do and you're, you're like, oh my gosh, I should definitely not have like cussed out this person, right? You're like, I, I need to repent of that. What you can do is you can bottle that up and justify it and double down on it. Or you can say, God, I, I bring this before you. God, I, I own this in my as my confession. God, I surrender my heart. Take away anything that, any pride or whatever it might be and, and give me a pure heart. And God, I just receive the restoration. And can I tell you, God will begin to restore your heart wherever you're at. Wherever you're at, God will begin to restore your heart. Maybe it's that thing in the middle of the night that you know you should have been gone to bed, but you're really up doing things you're not supposed to. And, and you feel that conviction and it feels wrong. And so it just hangs on you more. And then you don't want to come around the church people because you're like, ah, church people are so good. And I feel like I just, people can smell it on me. And God's saying, listen, why don't you just lay it down? And then we can all come and realize that we're all a mess. Raise your hand in your place, this place if you ever felt like a mess. All right, good. So we're all on the same page. Amen. <laughs> that feel freeing for somebody? Good, good. Would you stand with me this morning? I love this song. I'm going to walk back here so I get the lyrics right. And I'm going to steal your chord chart. So I hope you know it. <laughs> it's A, E, F sharp minor, E, D, E, A. <laughs> the bridge says, mercy is falling. Lift up your hands, receive it now, here in the presence of the Lord. It says, I know your past is broken, you can move on. It's over now, here in the presence of the Lord. Tired of running? Be still and know that he's in control here in the presence of the Lord. Pour out your heart before him. Open your arms and he'll hold you now, here in the presence of the Lord. Some of you this morning, I believe that God wants to release restoration in your life. 
And all he's saying this morning is would you be willing to lay it down? Would you be willing to, to confess and say, God, God, I, I don't want this control in my life. I confess it to you. I, I give you my, my whole heart. I give you every part of my heart. And I say, God, would you, would you have your way? that he wants to give restoration this morning. Not revision, not a plan B. Your life isn't a plan B, C, D, F, G, wherever you feel like you're at. It's a plan A. God built you with on purpose for a purpose, and he wants to release you to that purpose this morning. Would you close your eyes with me? Just take a second. Just allow the Lord to minister to your heart. I always want to give this opportunity. If you've never said before in your life, Jesus, I, I surrender my heart and I choose to follow you. If you've never made that commitment and you say this morning, man, I'm tired of living for myself. I, I want to live for God. I want to live in the freedom of his love. I want to receive everlasting life. I want to see, receive the freedom and hope and love that comes from Jesus Christ. If you've never said that and you're saying this morning, you feel like Jesus is working and he's saying, just step into that. Receive salvation this morning. Begin the journey of following Christ. If that's you this morning, you're saying, I, I'm going to make that choice to follow Jesus. Would you just lift your hand up really quickly and then put it back down? so good. That makes me so excited. Sorry. Amen. Amen. If you made that decision, I'm going to pray and I just invite you to just receive this. And again, there's no like magic word prayer. This is the beginning of a choice for you. This is God. I'm choosing to walk this journey. Uh, you know, kind of spoiler alert, you're not going to know all the answers yet, but it's a great journey and we want to walk that with you and God wants to walk that with you. There's a ton of grace. There's a ton of mercy. But this morning, if you've made that decision, if you raise your hand up and down, God is saying this morning to you, receive that, walk in it. You are free this morning. Let's pray together. If you've already prayed that, we prayed a prayer of salvation. Just agree with me as well. Agree with me as well in this place. God, we thank you. God, to those that raised their hand, we're saying in this moment, I lay down my heart, I follow you with my whole being, my whole life, heart, mind, body, soul, I give to you. God, I thank you that you love me, that you gave your life for me. I thank you that your son died for me, was resurrected and walked a new life, and I choose this morning to walk in the new life of Jesus Christ. If that's you, just say amen this morning. Amen. Amen. The second thing this morning, you can open your eyes and look at me if you want. You can keep them closed, whatever helps stay in that moment. Is if you're saying this morning, you know what? I feel like I got some stuff hanging on me and I want to be released and restored. Or maybe you're praying really for someone that you know that, that struggles and you're saying, God, I, I'm just going to pray that you would intercede and, and have some releasing and some restoration this morning. Would you do me a favor? Would you just lift your hand and we're going to pray together. Say, God, I'm believing for some restoration. God, there's some things in my life I want to lay down. Would you create in me a new heart this morning? Let's just pray together. And I'm going to believe as we pray. Again, this morning, you're going to receive that restoration. So if that's you, just leave your hand up. Let's pray together this morning. 
God, as a church, we just repent of anything that would separate us from you. God, we thank you for your mercy. God, we thank you for your grace. We thank you that your mercy is new every day. God, we thank you that your grace is sufficient, meaning more than we could ever need. God, that when we get to the end of what we feel like the grace we deserve, there's still more. There's oceans of your grace. There's oceans of your mercy. And so, God, we receive it this morning. And God, we open our hearts to you. Every door in our heart, if you need to open your heart, just say, Jesus, I open my heart to you this morning. Every part of my heart. And I pray that you would make your way in my heart. And God, right now, I pray that those who have raised their hand will receive the restoration of you, God. That in the natural cannot restore, it can only revise. But that you can restore. That no matter how fallen we feel, no matter if we feel like Peter or like David, no matter what we've done, that you can always restore. That you can always bring hope. That you can always bring life and bring us back to the purpose, no matter how broken we might have felt. And so, God, I pray right now for those whose hands are raised, that they would receive the restoration of Jesus Christ. They would right now begin to feel their soul and their heart begin to be filled by the power of the Holy Spirit and be filled up more and more. Just receive it this morning, more of the restoration, more of the joy. Though there should be no joy in your situation, there's joy right now in your situation. Though there should be no hope in your situation, there's hope now in your situation. Though there should be only death, there's life. Though there should be only darkness, there's light. God, we prophesy to those who have lifted their hands that they would be restored in the name of Jesus this morning by the power of your Holy Spirit. Yes, God. Yes, God.